Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We would like to get into some listener feedback this season, so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything even tangentially related to the podcast, you can send an email to Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, at tracknerds.com, or hit me up on Twitter, where my handle is, at tracknerds. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Okay, so we will start off season four with history in film with the year of living dangerously, which takes place in 1965. So with our bonus episode on Zodiac, we did technically cheat forward a little bit in the timeline, but everything's so compressed here as we get to the latter half of the 20th century. There's going to be even more overlap than we've had in the past, and we're just going to give you a rough progression of the last 60 years of human history here leading into modern day this season. So yes, You're Living Dangerously is set in Indonesia. And this was a movie I had not seen before. And I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's not great, great, but it's very solid and definitely worth watching. And by my count is our third Peter Weir movie on the list. Does that sound about right? Yeah, um, I, I agree. It was It was pretty good. I will say, I think the one thing that would have made it better is if they just scrapped the whole Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver part of the story and just made the whole movie about Billy Kwan, made the whole movie, you know, made Linda Hunt's Billy Kwan character, the main character of the movie, and just focused on on him the whole time. Because I yeah. loved that performance. It was so good. It blew me away. And and actually, and here's what's crazy. So, so to that exact point, so as I'm watching the movie... I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure that's a woman playing a guy and not in like a crying game thing where like the character is secretly a woman. It's like, no, no, no. They hired a female actress to play a male character. And I can't think of another instance where we've ever seen that done outside of like voice acting and things like that. But yes, as I'm watching the movie, I was just like fascinated and transfixed on this character and even thought, holy crap, this is an Oscar-caliber performance. And then I look it up after the fact, oh, yes, she was the movie's one nomination at the Oscars, and she won Best act- best Supporting Actress for this performance. And rightly so. And, and rightly yeah, so. Yeah, I was... And it's, it's rare that... Not rare necessarily, but it's rare that a performance stands out like that so much, that you're watching a movie, not thinking about anything else, and you're like, holy crap, give that person an Oscar, and it's a movie from almost 40 years ago, and you're like, oh, yeah, she got the Oscar. Don't worry. This they, is, they recognized it's, it. It's a perfect example of a once-in-a-lifetime performance. I think it, it does elevate the rest of the movie a little bit. But Yes, and so she yeah, and she's someone too. She looked super familiar, but then going through her IMDb page, I didn't necessarily see something that stood out to me. But I guess it's oh, you know what it is? It's uh I don't watch the show, but I've seen the commercials. She's in CIS. And, oh, okay. and it looks like she's been in a couple hundred NCIS episodes. So she looks like the Edith Head inspired character from The Incredibles with kind of the short hair and yeah. glasses. So, yeah. but they, they do a good job. And I don't think it seems she's very slight. She's a very, very small woman and kind of has this mm-hmm. weird, raspy, almost not, not natural sounding voice. So when she's playing this half Australian, half Indonesian man, it doesn't seem out of place. He's supposed to be small and frail and unhealthy even to a point where I don't know if he straight up has dwarf. He's supposed to straight up have dwarfism. I think maybe in the book he did, but it was a very, very I, interesting I think he casting. does. Okay. At, at least I'm, I'm pretty sure he's described as a, as, as a dwarf. And I, I don't know if that's, 
just because he's smaller because he actually has dwarfism. You know, has the, yeah. yeah. But yes, it's a man, it's just a fascinating character. And it's interesting though too. So yeah, it would be a completely different movie. So within the movie we're given, and I do want to talk about the history of Indonesia here in a second too. But the story we're given is Mel Gibson is a reporter from Australia coming to just kind of make his, you know, get his career started and, you know, trying to he's a foreign correspondent in Indonesia for Australia and wanting to he's very ambitious and wants to you know get the scoops and he's young and excited and you know this is movies from what 1982 yes or right around there yeah sometimes sometimes you get different numbers on IMDb versus Rotten Tomatoes but yeah IMDb says 1982 oh but it was 1984 Oscars for 1983 movies so actually Rotten Tomatoes is probably right anyway so but they're all fictional so this is all based on a book called The Year Living Dangerously and so the three characters we're focused on here, we already mentioned Linda Hunt as Billy, and then Mel Gibson as this reporter. Guy Hamilton. Guy Hamilton. Yeah. And then Sigourney Weaver plays his love interest, who's friends with Billy, and she kind of plays matchmaker and hooking these two up. And she's an English woman who's getting ready to, to leave. They're all fictional, but this is set against the actual events in Indonesia at the time. And so I want to run through some background stuff for Indonesia because we've de- we have been to Southeast Asia a little bit in our timeline here before but but not a whole bunch. So first off with the name, we talked about when we were in Kantiki, all the Micronesia, Polynesia, Melanesia things. Well, here we have Indonesia and we talked about in the in that episode that Nisia was basically just Greek for island. So that continues here and Indonesia basically means Indian islands. These countries and these islands are all kind of off the east side of the Bay of Bengal across from India. And then historically, there was definitely ties to, you know, India was so powerful. Basically, you go back 2,000 years ago, it's India and China and then everything else in this area. So India had heavy influence. So anyway, it's called Indonesia. But so there is some interesting history stuff long before we get to the timeline here. So just like we've seen in most of the world on these islands, Indonesia, and also what is now Malaysia, you have definitely all these kind of warring tribes and factions. And they kind of like what you saw in China, where one kind of takes over and becomes a dynasty for a while. And then another one swoops in and, and takes control. And then they kind of splinter back up into more regional stuff. And then a you know a big guy comes in and takes over the whole area and just kind of ebbing and flowing like that for centuries. And an interesting one was, so as the Mongols were getting big in China, Kublai Khan sent a, oh, missionary is not the right word exactly, but an, an emissary. So uh, Kublai Khan sends mm-hmm. an emissary to basically make overtures to say, hey, uh, we're in charge. You guys need to kind of pay us some kind of respect down there so we don't come and, and, and mess you up. And the uh, the leader in Indonesia at the time, uh, if I can say his name right, it's like Kirtanagira. He takes the emissary and cuts his ears off and tattoos him and sends it back to Kublai Khan, who, of course, is super mad that, you know, they were so offended. And he sends this huge, like, armada of ships down through the Bay of Bengal to attack this guy in Indonesia. But in the meantime, a new party had come in and taken over. And so by the time the Mongols get there, they're like, oh, yeah, don't worry. That dude that, like, you know, pissed you off. We already took him out for you, so you're you're good. But the Mongols were kind of mad they'd come all this way. So the first guy, the Kirtanagara's son-in-law or brother-in-law or something, says, "Oh, hey, Mongols, uh, you want to help me take over these guys?" So they came to kick the one people's butts <laughs> and then joined forces with that first side, who they essentially, in theory, came to defeat. But they just were kind of itching for a fight. So then they helped this guy take back over, and then that guy kills all the mongols who just helped him take back over 
Oh my god. So, I don't know. I just love it. There's all this stuff. History is just so rich with these stories like this that we just never even hear about at all. And I just thought that was kind of a neat one. And that was all, basically, that was in roughly... I actually didn't write it down, but it was in roughly like the 1100s, give or take. It was So it was, you know, 800, 900 years ago that all this was going down. And then soon after that, you get the heavy Islamic group. So it's basically similar to what we saw before with, you know, the ebbing and flowing of the power structures. But more and more of these kingdoms that are kind of taking power in various parts of this part of the world are now Islamic. And, and, and obviously to this day, worth noting, skipping ahead, that Indonesia does have the largest Muslim population in the world. Yeah. Uh, so Okay, so then after, after the Muslims kind of come through, then you get to the European Age of Exploration, and the Portuguese are the first to arrive, and they're trying to make, you know, they get the economic interest in all this part of the world. We saw a little bit of that in uh, Silence, where it was the Portuguese followed by the Dutch in Japan. Same kind of thing here. The Portuguese were big on kind of the missionary work along with the economic stuff. But then the Dutch can come in and kind of kick the Portuguese to the side, and the Dutch really don't care about the religion stuff. They are just there for basically the spices. It this is a huge part of the world for I guess cinnamon and cloves and nutmeg. This is like this is where they come from, is this part of the world. And so the Dutch East India Company lasts for a couple hundred years and just kind of controls this whole area. And you do have the British coming in, and roughly so the line we see today. And it, it, I really can't describe it. You just kind of have to pull up a map. This is, this is those islands that are kind of Southeast Asia, above Australia, lots of islands. There are a ton of them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's unreal. But <laughs> if you, anyway, look at a map. So Indonesia is kind of what the Dutch controlled. And then the British did kind of come in and control what is now Malaysia. And then Singapore is on the end of the little part of Malaysia there now. So that's kind of where the distinction is. So you had the two Europeans in control with Britain kind of controlling the, top, controlling the top half with Malaysia. And the bottom half is the Dutch-controlled Indonesia. Then that brings us up into World War II when the Japanese swoop in and take control of all these islands. And then actually, so some of the Indonesian locals, I wouldn't say welcome the Japanese, but basically... The Japanese control was now their way to kick out the Europeans. And so independence movements within Indonesia basically kind of made deals with the Japanese to kind of make sure they could have some more autonomy and get rid of the Europeans, which basically, yes. So after World War II and the Japanese are defeated, Indonesia immediately declares independence from the Dutch. The Dutch then, though, at first tried to declare war. And so from 1944, sorry, 1945 to 1949, it's basically a war with the Dutch trying to maintain control of an Indonesia that wants to be independent. Ultimately, world opinions or the world sentiment just kind of was turned against the Dutch and said, just leave them alone. And the Dutch withdrew. And then so in 1949, Indonesia kind of does become an independent country with its first president, Sukarno, who 20 years later, 20 or yeah, 15, 20 years later, is still president when the year of living dangerously takes place. So when we see this president, who is a little bit of a controversial figure that Billy actually likes and then kind of grows not to like, that's kind of why. Yeah. He was the person who gave us our independence from the Dutch. So yeah, he's our hero. But real life and the realities of ruling and everything kind of starts to turn and even Billy becomes, well then, I mean, spoiler alert to the end, Billy ends up getting killed for a protest he makes against the president following the upheaval. You you talk about Billy getting killed. Uh, In in the movie, they kind of show, which 
you could probably speak more to the uh, historical accuracy and the scale of this. But the thing that really makes Billy the most disillusioned with Sukarno is, you know, the poverty and how like native Indonesians are being treated by the Europeans that are still there and the poverty and hunger, you know, because he has the uh, girl that he uh, goes and gives money to oh, for her right. son and then her son gets sick and dies. And, and that, you know, it's just like one thing. And, you know, uh, the scene where they're at the, uh, they're at a restaurant. They're like paying some like disfigured Indonesian guy to like sing and dance and stuff. And that like really makes Billy pretty uncomfortable and upset. So that's kind of like one of the themes is you know, seeing Billy get, you know, get more and more disillusioned with, with how Indonesia is, is being run and how Indonesians are being treated um, until, yeah, he, hang, which I don't remember what it says on the sheet, but he basically hangs that bed sheet out of the window of a hotel that Sakarn's about to show up to. Yes, it says feed your people. It says Sicarno feed your people or something like that. That's right. Yeah. And then his goons show up and, and throw him out the window. Oh, yeah. That, that was, man, that was, this is good filmmaking in the sense that it it puts these fictional characters within these actual events and then shows you their motivations and how, again, the Billy character makes this huge turn for who a local who has a lot of pride for his country, but then makes this shift based on his personal experience, but nothing seems forced or out of character it just kind of flows and he starts off defending the person and just as more information comes out and then we see how mel gibson's character is kind of exposed to it too where he's kind of trying to defend it a little bit too and then kind of gets to the point where mm-hmm. he's like okay i'm just I, I i have been naive he has to swallow his pride and kind of admit that he's been naive as well yeah and it's even more heartbreaking because when he finally gets the the courage to you know make this grand gesture it's you know it's like one of the the most it's like the most dramatic thing that he's ever done in his entire life he hangs this banner out you know gets thrown out the window basically sacrifices his life to make this gesture and Sicardo doesn't even see it because he gets thrown out the window and they immediately get back in the car and leave and he didn't even see the banner that Billy put out the window that he got killed for. Yes. So now the major incident that this whole movie is building up to is something called the 30 September movement or the 30th of September movement, I guess. So the government is not communist, but there is a heavy communist party with a lot of power in the country. It's called the PKI or the, the communist party of Indonesia, however the language works out, the the acronym is PKI. And we see that on a lot of signs throughout the movie and a lot of protests. And the, the, the people who basically hate the, the Europeans and Australians are there, are, are, the, are definitely the PKI who want the communists to have more control. The president, Sukarno, has done a fairly good job of giving them enough power to keep them satisfied, but also not letting them take over the country. So they have a role but they're not in charge. So what happens is, and this is, so the big story that Mel Gibson's character gets is that Sigourney Weaver's character kind of, for his own protection, says, hey, we hear the communists are basically bringing in a lot of weapons. There's going to be a coup. So she's telling him that for his own safety so he can get out of the country. But he, again, being ambitious, is like, well, I'm going to break that story then. You got the, I'm going to, what's your source? And he and like it's, starts. It's classified. It's classified information. Yes. That she's telling yeah. Her she is. works with the embassy and stuff. So yeah, she's, yeah. Yeah. She wasn't supposed to tell a reporter this. But yeah, so this is all, so this, again, they're fictional, but this is all in real life. This, so there, there was basically an attempted coup of the, the communists trying to take over the country 
and it failed. And so we're kind of then seeing the aftermath. The, the, the aftermath is what the movie kind of really focuses on. Because the coup's kind of happening more in the background. We don't really see our characters affected much directly by that. It's more the aftermath and the crackdown. So this part, this communist party that we've been okay with kind of having around. Yeah, they all got to die now. And so the whole country goes into kill the communist mode. And the numbers are, and of course, again, it gets very kind of like, I don't want to say witch hunty because they were it actually, they were a threat to the establishment, but it was something like at least half a million people in the country were killed in a pretty short window here as it's just this massacre to purge Indonesia of communists. Yeah. And then they're also not too happy about the role that the journalists have of reporting this stuff to the outside world. And so Mel Gibson's got to get the heck out of this country. You don't know if he's going to make it or not. And yes, yeah, so the the movie is him. You know, Billy's dead. He gets out of the country and he kind of meets Sigourney Weaver at the on the last plane to get out of there alive. And it's definitely very tense. And he has to use some of the locals he's friends with to get him out. And that's basically the movie. And that's basically the history that they did. They did quell this movement. Sicarno did maintain power until uh, actually not too much longer after this. So Sicarno gets booted uh, just a couple years after this. It's not a huge governmental change, though. He's basically just uh, just replaced by one of his generals and put under house arrest. Again, so it's not a huge party shift. It's more just a, yeah, we're done with you. Let's move on to the next guy thing. But the infrastructure is still mostly in place. So it's not like a big coup or a big, you know, new, like we saw in China or Russia where a whole new party comes in to be in charge. It's more just like, no, you, the president, you're done. Put one of your guys in charge. And then that guy who actually has a similar, uh, who has a similar name, it's Saharto. So he's then president until basically the late 90s when they do finally have a democratic revolution and it kind of has its own fits and starts. And But yes, it's a slower process than it should be. But over like the next five to 10 years, Indonesia becomes a democracy with regular presidential elections, which it maintains to this day. And I think it still has its own issues, but it is considered a fairly, I'm not progressive, a strong word, but it is a democratic country in Southeast Asia to this day. But yeah, that covers the movie. That kind of covers the history from the Indonesia side of things. So there's probably not too much else to talk about. Do you have anything to get into? No, I mean, I I would say that, you know, the, the, the movie, it's a solid five out of 10, but watch the movie if for no other reason than just to see Linda Hunt's performance because it is so good. You don't give it a five out of 10? <laughs> the the movie itself yeah oh uh, I, as an overall score uh, i mean, her her performance is a, is a 10 out of 10 oh right but, but i guess i consider a 5 out of 10 a bad movie are we just getting into the semantic I'm, argument here about how you're rating something yeah it's i mean because like i don't watch 5 out of 10 movies i, I don't know this, this might be going way off the rails here but as well if you see a movie on like just like a 50 percent on rotten tomatoes that's bad or right. if you see a movie that's a five out of ten on IMDb, that's bad. But when I rate movies, <laughs> okay, uh, well we need to talk know, about like this. Then. Five, five is five out of ten is is an average movie. It's like you know, I right down you. the middle. Basically, okay. basically, if you if you make a movie where there are shots and cuts and it's edited and the sound matches the people, you know, like if somebody talks and like the words come out, like that's at least like a two or a three out of ten. Okay. Because you you successfully made a movie. <laughs> when people say this movie's a zero out of ten, it's like, come on, like it's it's a movie still. You know? Okay, okay. I don't know. And so on that scale, this is only a five? Yeah. I didn't I didn't care about I didn't really care about Mel Gibson's okay, character. Okay, no, 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 no. Really and that's fair. And that's fair. Character. 
Like I, I only wanted to see Linda Hunt and any time that Billy Kwan, that the character Billy Kwan wasn't on the screen, I was just waiting for him to show up again. And then once he died, I was like, I mean, you know, historically this is pretty interesting, but I'd almost rather watch a documentary about the 30 September movement and just skip all of the Mel Gibson, Sigourney Weaver stuff. Okay, so you you so you would say it's eighty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes is a little too generous. Uh, I think that Linda Hunt's performance is probably what makes it that high. Okay, I don't think people actually like the movie that much. And that's fair. And that is the critic score. The audience score is a seventy seven percent. And I and I would I don't completely agree with you in the sense that I enjoyed it better than you did. I definitely agree with you on Linda Hunt's performance. I do also agree with you that the Mel and Sigourney stuff is not particularly strong. I definitely agree with yeah. that. It's, it's a weak point of the movie. There's definitely times where maybe you're even getting bored. I also don't feel, though, from a filmmaking standpoint, I give all of those points back for Peter Weir's direction. And okay, I can see that. when you get into the stuff, like when they're doing, because we even talked about the whole, the, the whole shadow puppet thing, I found that fascinating. And there's like there's these Indonesian shadow puppets. It's, it's definitely a, a very kind of big cultural thing in this part of the world. They kind of have these, I don't know what you would call them. They're almost kind of like marionettes in a way, but they're two-dimensional kind of paper cutouts that you would show behind a sheet. Yeah. So that the shadow, it's basically it's shadow puppets, but not like the whole like right. socks or hands. It's like, no, they actually build these right. elaborate yeah. ones that are very Southeast Asian looking and they kind of dance around. And again, there's it goes, does come back to Billy is the one kind of explaining these in a very just beautiful artistic way. So yeah, to your point, well, that's a Billy scene. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> uh, but also I, I I even dug too, like looking at the artwork on the cover of the book this is based on is one of those puppets, and I'm like, I just I don't know, just the aesthetic well, there. The, it's the uh, it's also the, the opening credits. Yeah, while yeah. the opening credits are playing, it's all the it's the shadow puppets moving around. And- I uh, so yeah, I, I'd almost be curious to maybe I have not read the book. But I'd be curious, like, is the book maybe the better thing to recommend? But then you don't get Linda Hunt's performance. <laughs> right. So there you go. Read the book, which we haven't read, and then watch the movie <laughs> and just fast forward when Linda Hunt's not on screen. <laughs> right. I can get behind that. <laughs> okay. So next week, we will stay in Southeast Asia and just creep forward a couple of years here into the Vietnam War with the 1986 Best Picture winner, Platoon. 